Yum yum. I just thought like, yeah, give me a food movie, but I, that's not what I'm doing. Yum yum. The yum, topic yum. is yum yum. The taste of Cajun <laughs> cooking. Oh my god, dude. <laughs> yum yum. <laughs> yum yum. Universal yums. <laughs> can we get a sponsorship? I want to fucking do. Uh, yeah. You can order your universal yum. Dude. Universal yums, yeah. dude. Use promo code yum yum four twenty. Yeah, call yeah Eastwood yum. Yeah, Eastwood yum yum. Cry macho out in theaters now. Universal yums. Yeah. Uh. Uh-uh. Oh, boy. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my That's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and as always, I'm here with... Eric Marsh. And Ryan Saunders. Uh, And for those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic and the other hosts are tasked with bringing films to the table to meet that topic, to butt against that topic. And then we hash it out. We, We... we have it out right here in the hallowed halls of the Gauntlet headquarters. I was up this week. It was my topic. And as I mentioned at the end of our episode last week, uh, there's a, a certain trial that's been taking place. And I think been on the minds of a lot of citizens of our country. And as I said before, I don't really feel like we need to get into that trial particularly. But it did um, put my brain into into the great legal films, films that deal with trials and uh, tribulations, of course, no pun intended, in our legal system. And the, the I should also say the, the international legal systems of the world. Also, uh, on a personal note, you know, I should point out that, that while I uh, did not go to law school, my senior year of high school, I was on the law team at uh, York High School. So uh, I feel very confident and very well-versed in legal procedure. So I'm, I, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but, uh, but, I'm, but I'm happy to also you know, offer whatever I can you know, to, to usher us through some of the, you know, the more maybe uh, technical elements of, of the courts today. for Gauntlet legal consulting. Yeah, absolutely. I was a cross-examiner because... I'm an asshole, so they put me in <laughs> cross-examination. So I'm very, very excited to talk about the films that you both both brought to the table because without, again, getting too far ahead of ourselves, they are, they are not films that that I uh, have ever seen, ever heard of by uh, two filmmakers that I'm, I'm very unfamiliar with and um, very, very eager to, to hear what you both have to say about them. So let's just 
dive right in with uh, opening statements, if you will. <laughs> Marsh, why don't you tell us about the film that you selected? I feel like I have a, a complicated relationship with the courtroom drama simply because, you know, guys our age, Andy, we came of age when the, the legal drama really proliferated, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the age of Grisham, right? Oh, you yeah. know, and I, I read those novels as a kid. Uh, and there were just a shitload of, of court television shows and movies growing up. And, and while there are a lot of great ones, also a lot of duds, oh, you yeah. know? In that spirit, I was trying to find something, you know, that I hadn't seen, something different, not your, your typical, uh, at least, uh, you know, courtroom film we would watch in in this country and in fact i was uh, totally sold by the user submitted description at the torrent factory where someone wrote ever seen a japanese courtroom drama now's your chance and i thought <laughs> i i don't think i have you know like i was okay you know like you dare me or whatever and so i chose Suspicion from 1982, written and directed by Yoshitaro Nomura, who is an interesting uh, and kind of lesser known figure in Japanese cinema, but one that sort of looms large. He directed at Shochiku from 1941 into the mid-1980s. Yeah all at the same studio. And I saw conflicting reports, but estimates that he directed about 90 features in that time. And this was one of his last films. But he's not as well known as, say, like the Japanese New Wave directors uh, or the Golden Age directors, because he's kind of in between. He came of age as an assistant to Kurosawa and those kinds of directors, and then started making films in the 50s, and then he mentored Oshima and Imamura and uh, gave them jobs when they were starting out. So he's kind of this like transitional sort of in-between figure, not as radical as, you know, the people after him, but he, he did his own thing and he did, you know, that versatile genre auteur filmmaking, just really solid stuff. Uh, and he's best known for these sort of vaguely Hitchcockian crime thrillers. And that's how I came to him a few years ago. I saw this film, Stakeout, from 1958. And that film really blew me away as this really stylish crime thriller. Throughout his career, he had eight collaborations with Saicho Matsumoto, the novelist who was a popular crime novelist in Japan and who also wrote the source material for Suspicion. So this was a sort of long-standing crime collab uh, between these legends of uh, of Japanese genre filmmaking. And so Suspicion is a film about a car accident and what happened in that accident as a car goes flying off a pier in Toyama, a coastal city uh, in Japan. And the man in the car dies and the wife is rescued. And there are many questions as to who, what, where, when, and why of this deadly scenario. And so it is from there a somewhat conventional uh, sort of courtroom drama as we see 
the case being built, uh, specifically from the perspective of the defense. And I should introduce the players here. So uh, the accused, Kumako, is the woman who survived the car accident. And it turns out her husband comes from a very wealthy family who uh, owns a brewery uh, in this coastal town, and they're very powerful. And so all of the suspicion is put onto Kumako, who survives this accident, uh, and then is put through the ringer in the press and in the courtroom as an entire society deems her guilty before uh, there's even a trial, right? And she does turn out to be quite an eccentric character, I think forms, uh, you know, yeah, the, the heart and soul of this twisted uh, movie. Yeah, she doesn't do herself any favors. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, she does not. Um, and yeah, so I think in that sense, you know, it is, it is an interesting take on the courtroom drama. It really did uh, go certain places that really, you know, took me by surprise. And I, I was, again, you know, you, you expect one thing with a, a legal thriller, and uh, this, yeah, this surprised me in, in several different ways. Uh, and I also want to note, just for fun, that the cinematography was done by Takashi Kawamata, who shot Black Rain uh, a few years after this. Oh, wow. <laughs> Shout out to Ridley Scott. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ridley, that's if sir, you're listening. Uh, that's Sir Ridley to... to in the courtroom. Oh, thank you, Eric. Thank you, uh, Ryan. Uh, how about you? Deliver your opening statement for us, please. I chose a film that I've been wanting to watch for quite a while, and it's just another one of those instances where the gauntlet has finally given me an excuse to to press play and engage with it, and that is the 2014 film Court. And it's a film from India from the director Chaitanya Tamhane. And it was directed by him at the, when he was merely 28 years old, which is quite an achievement when you see how, at least I found the film to be uh, significantly refined and pretty wise in a way that um, me approaching 28 might not have, a, uh, <laughs> have accomplished as well. Um, we were both that wise at 28, <laughs> I remember. Absolutely. This was his first feature, and he has a new film that uh, came out this year called The Disciple. Um, but so Court opens with a poet, teacher, activist, performer named Narayan Kambal as he's on his way in town in Mumbai. He is giving a performance that is sort of like a call to arms and reflection on, on a massacre that has happened. And as he's giving his performance, as he's singing his song, he's interrupted as the police come and they take him away. We later find out that he's being accused of abetment of suicide because someone who works down in the sewers, Vasudev Pawar, has seemingly committed suicide, and they say it's because he was singing a song that was encouraging all sewage workers of India to commit suicide. Because of the severity of the case, he is not granted bail, and so he is held in jail as the trial extends for multiple months. And throughout that time, as we spend extended periods of time in the courtroom, we also spend extended periods of time outside of the courtroom following various members of the courts, particularly the lawyers, both the middle-class lawyer, Vinay, who is defending him, and also Newton, who is the public prosecutor taking on his case. And in doing 
doing so, it becomes a sort of deconstruction into the inherent prejudices of the Indian court system and that the way that the system is designed uh, in an archaic fashion that is working against those who are advocates against certain policies in the Indian government. Um, so I'll leave it at that as we'll go into greater detail over the various witnesses that are brought forward to the case in the way that the personal lives of all the participants of the courtroom are detailed. But that is court from 2014. It strikes me, you know, as I was just thinking more in in preparation for this, this week's topic, that, that I think a lot of films that, you know, explore the legal system, they kind of fit into two fundamental categories for me. There are those that that see the law as something ultimately like sacred and there to, to protect people and and it's it's this sort of like redemptive institution, if you will, where where in the end justice will prevail. Uh, and I think particularly you see that a lot in American films. You know, mm-hmm. it's often this sort of David and Goliath thing and the and the law is the stone in in David's slingshot. But there are also a lot of legal films that that fit into this other category that that ultimately uh, sees the legal system as something far more oppressive and far more of, uh, I think in the words of the director of court, this sort of, uh, what did he say, a, a judicial nightmare mm-hmm. that people can kind of find themselves trapped in. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because I think that both of these films, they they sort of, um, they flirt with both of those ideas and both take very different approaches in their own ways to this question of, you know, what, what do we find in the halls of justice? Do we find, you know, the truth? Do we find redemption? Do we find, you know, the protection of the, the, the wrongfully accused? Or do we find, you know, mountains of paperwork and procedure that don't seem to end up going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, And there's also, I thought, a really interesting contrast between the two films in the type of person that is on trial, and at least in the sort of assumptions that the film is giving you about those protagonists, because suspicion almost seems designed in a way where you have to wonder how could she possibly be innocent throughout. It is just everything is stacked against her, and she doesn't seem to be rejecting certain details that you'd think naturally as an innocent party that she would be very vocally adamant, like, I've got nothing to do with this or that or X or Y or Z. While in this film, it's sort of absurd. It's in court. It's absurd because why would, you know, just singing a song be reason to accuse someone of abetment of suicide? And at the same time, he does have a very casual attitude towards the, the charges against him as well, because even when they mention, are you singing songs about suicide? He's like, I mean, I might have been, and I don't have a problem writing songs like that, uh, but I, I don't think I, I did write the one that you're accusing me of singing. But they are very different in that sense as we're certain while watching court that it's a system set up against the person on trial and he is innocent, while that question is still dangling over suspicion as we're watching it. I think in the end, both of the characters on trial were guilty of being themselves. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And they both talk back uh, to the judges and to the people of the court, and they just can't help but, but be 
be themselves, you know? Uh, and there are, yeah, you know, there there was, of course, uh, a lot of overlap, uh, I think, in the kinds of uh, procedures that we see in these films. For instance, uh, both films feature lots of lying witnesses and sensationalist uh, sort of takes on uh, on certain elements of, of the case, uh, which is interesting. But yeah, I mean, it, it is ultimately, right, a question of, yeah, like, is the truth revealed in this process, right? And is there mm-hmm. is there justice in this process? And they both feature these sort of, I think, bold kind of idealistic uh, attorneys, yes, you know, for the defense in both cases, which is, I think, a staple in a lot of films. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of legal films. You know, it's it's so much easier, perhaps, to root for the defense, right, the underdog, uh, than it is to to simply root for. <laughs> Someone getting locked up, you know, for right. for having a dime bag in their sock or whatever, you know, <laughs> or in this case, you know, maybe murdering your husband or whatever for insurance money. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I really really uh, enjoyed both of these films. Um, I think that yeah, in the, in the case of of suspicion, it was interesting because you know you do have this this figure that you are unsure of, and the film goes to great lengths from the get-go to, you know, build the the suspicion, right? To, to build this case mm-hmm. against the accused. And even for us in the audience, you know, this isn't Hitchcock where we're seeing right off the bat that this is, you know, the wrong man, the wrong woman, the wrong person. Like, it, it's very quick even for us that we start to go, well, I mean, it seems kind of like... Maybe, <laughs> you know, like, I, I'd buy it, you know? I'd buy that. Yeah, because... Suspicion opens with a very chaotic kind of like Nicholas Rogue opening Mm -hmm. where we're seeing this jigsaw puzzle of an event that is, of course, the crime, the event in the film, but we're given simply bits and pieces of it, right? We see that there is a man and a woman who appear to be on some kind of vacation, but there's also like they're driving on the beach and there's like shots of hands to indicate that various people are driving at different moments. And we just get all these little strange glimpses until all of the sudden, you know, it cuts to night and the car just roars by uh, this unsuspecting guy in a telephone booth uh, and flies off the pier. Uh, And the movie just sort of begins. And yeah, we're given no real indication of what actually happened. And immediately, you know, the authorities, when they show up and they're they're trying to sort of uh, deconstruct what happened, they start to to fixate on certain details, you know, certain circumstantial uh, bits and pieces of evidence that they think they've found. So they, along with the the press, who have also quickly arrived on the scene, start to draw their conclusions, you Mm -hmm. know, that, that, okay, you know, she's saying it was an accident, but what's this fucking wrench doing here? Why is his shoe missing? And of course, the question being, who the hell is driving this car? Yeah, that's a quality that's present in both films where they're initially presented with pieces of evidence outside of the courtroom and it's those narratives that they're creating out of that that then gets leaked and spread amongst different people who could be potential witnesses or are involved with the case and it becomes an accepted narrative that's like really just based off initial impressions from those there at the time. But yeah, it calls into question the way that 
how could justice possibly be served if we're constantly trying to create narratives out of our lives and these situations that we find ourselves in? Especially once it's revealed that her husband, the dead man, uh, was the scion of Shirakawa Brewing. Mm -hmm. Immediately, right, we see the wheels turning, the press the police officers, everyone immediately assumes her guilt. Number one, she is not from a wealthy background. In fact, she has quite a a troubled background, as is revealed throughout uh, the film. And so there is an issue of class, and of course there is an issue of gender at hand. And it, it did strike me, of course, that both films do, right, deal with, yeah, these issues of class, and in, of course, India's case, caste, right, in relation to why he's being accused of, of what he's being accused of, and also why she's being accused of. And again, as I mentioned before, she doesn't do herself many favors because uh, she is uh, immediately revealed to be a, a rather unpleasant uh, person. <laughs> I think. Yeah, some people would say she tells it like it is. Other people would say that she's uh, off her rocker. Yeah, you know? and and certainly for the for all these like Japanese men to have this this very fiery woman who is you know immediately kind of in everyone's faces. You know, there's just this this question of decorum and decency that immediately, like, I think creates this antagonistic relationship between the journalists, the cops, and Kumako. And, you know, I think that's a huge part of it right off the bat is they really dislike her and her personality, and she seems very offensive to them. So naturally, like, like you're sort of saying, Ryan, that narrative starts to just develop around her and who she is rather than this sort of objective let's wait and see you know again this this cliche you know and it is a, a hallmark of of the legal system that one is innocent until proven guilty and again i think both films sort of turn that on its head because everyone is is in you know in and certainly in in the case of suspicion very certain <laughs> very certain that this woman is guilty. And like I said, she doesn't do herself any favors because it's no. it's like the next day, maybe even that night, that she starts to inquire about the insurance that she's supposed to collect. She has no tact. Yeah. No, that's an incredible sequence because it's all the police officers who are sort of going over the case, going over the details, trying to figure out exactly who was the passenger and who was driving. And that's when they get wind of the fact that she is trying to cash in this insurance claim. And even they say, like, what on earth? Is she just trying to taunt us? Is she making fun of us? Like, this is absurd. And it really is an incredible performance because I thought she did such a great job of coming across as one of the most like unlikable characters ever and to the point where I just loved her because of it yep. because it was just <laughs> yeah. every sequence it was like she was going out of her way to just be like as unpleasant and unlikable as possible for me like that moment of me falling in love with her and and how unpleasant and, and sort of yeah maybe tactless you would say Marsh was at the funeral so there's oh there's very God. quickly this this funeral for this this you know 
this patriarch of the the Shirakawa brewery, <laughs> like legacy family or whatever. And like, you know, there's of course the grieving mother and, and you know, everyone is so upset. And then Kumako shows up and the family are, are very incensed by her presence because they also believe that, you know, whether or not she killed him, you know, she is certainly responsible for the untimely death of the family member. So they're sort of like, how could she possibly show up at a time like this? Mm -hmm. One of the detectives is very keen and says, no, 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 I want to see her in there and I want to see how she reacts. I want to observe her reaction to that dead body. And of course, when she does, she approaches this, her dead husband, you know, in this place of mourning, this very formal setting with her hands in her pockets. And she just kind of saunters up to the, to the coffin, you know, very cash, I would say. I mean, she's wearing like a white shirt and a red dress while everyone is standing around, obviously in dark clothes of mourning. Yeah. With her fucking hands in her pockets, you know? But then she she's like looking at the body and and again this this fine line of of whether it's performance on her part or it is this this moment of you know uh, a, a realization of the the permanence of what is what is taking place but she starts to like retch like <laughs> it was so, so, I mean, again, the, just the phrase, like, unpleasant is what I can describe, but I just started cracking up. It's a gnarly gag. Yeah, I agree, because it's not that, like, gagging never really does sound pleasant, but she does seem to take it to another extreme of unpleasantness um, in the way that she, like, physically reacts to the body, and it's like a very wet gag. I haven't <laughs> yeah. seen retching that good since Frederick Wiseman's hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... So there, I think even the cops are kind of like, all right, the, the, this is, you know, that's fucking weird how she just, <laughs> her whole performance <laughs> at the funeral. Speaking of her, I guess, general unlikability, especially, you know, as everyone in the film is sort of perceiving her, uh, she has two lawyers at the beginning who both decide to back out for various reasons. So there is even this whole element of like, no one wants to defend her. No one's coming to her defense. Yeah, that was my favorite scene of the film when the initial lawyer backs out at the very beginning of the trial. The court <laughs> is in session, everything's getting started, and just before they can make their opening statements, the lawyer stands up and is like, Judge, uh, can I just like get a quick word in here? And he's like, sure. He's like, listen. <laughs> he's like, I got a bad liver. And this thing, no matter how it goes, if she's guilty it's going to be an appeal. If it's not guilty, it's going to be an appeal. And eventually it's going to go to the Supreme Court. I don't got it in me. I'm (laughs) out. And he just packs up his stuff and leaves. I love that guy, dude. (laughs) He's like, I mean, basically he's saying this thing will kill me if if I'm like, if I'm stuck with this. And I I believed him, you know, for sure. And so ultimately... The, the film really gets put into motion when the other main character of the film enters, and that is the state-appointed lawyer, Sahara. And from there, we are then sort of split in, in our perspectives as we see Sahara probing more into 
you know, the truth of the case, you know, uh, as she defends her client and challenge these narratives, you know, that are being put out there. And uh, it's just like so much of suspicion is about like the press carnival. And we should really hammer that home because it's like we really are getting these classic scenes of like spinning newspaper headlines Mm -hmm. and like lies and smears in the press and dirty underhanded tactics by the press as well. Press members rushing out of the courtroom so they can be the first ones to have a story after something's revealed like during the the proceedings. It's, It's right after the 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 first attorney bows out that they're just like oh hell yeah and they run like sprint <laughs> yeah. out yeah like, there's some really interesting like mise-en-scene stuff with the press because they're always sort of like jutting up from like off-screen space like all of a sudden a hand yeah. with a camera will just like reach into the frame and they are yeah this like constant horrible presence it it really is you know this this seemingly insurmountable force that that they are facing as the trial begins absolutely and that's why i really like that you brought up the um the the element of innocent until proven guilty because i think both films double down on that idea of how that that's like just a fallacy in terms of the way that the courtrooms are structured and the way these narratives are set up against individuals because in both films before any evidence is brought up against either of the people on trial they try to essentially like defamation of character by saying you know they have previous convictions they're just listing off all of the other times that they've gone to court or have just like small misdemeanors or just gone to jail. And again, Kumako is not doing, (laughs) she's not giving her attorney a lot of help in that, you know, because she is, you know, almost immediately from the get-go, like at times just having these outbursts in the courtroom where she's sort of like, I want to represent myself. And I think even at at a certain point she says that, right? She has like an even a moment with her attorney where she's kind of like, Look, I can handle this. I've always taken care of myself. You know, I'm strong. Mm-hmm. I'm a survivor. I've been through a lot, and I can I can handle this shit. I can take care of it. And even you know, her 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 attorney's like, all right, well, good luck if that's what you think is going to happen because right. you're gonna get you're gonna get wrecked by these people. They're yeah. already you know against you, and and you don't even really fully I think understand like how bad this looks for you as it is. There's even this moment where where Kumiko is savvy and Kumiko is the one that's like, yeah, the evidence is all circumstantial. Kumiko uses that phrase, you know, it's circumstantial evidence. And and somebody has to explain to her, yeah, but people get convicted on circumstantial evidence all the time. And she's like, oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. I really did think that there was a possibility that the film was going to go in the direction of her representing herself because there were all these parallels between um, my other favorite piece of courtroom media, which is the trial of Tim Heidecker, where he does end up representing himself in the courtroom and there's the constant you know disruptions and disorder in the court but once we were getting all those sequences of her studying law at night in her cell i really thought that that was the direction it was going because she was constantly so frustrated with her attorney and her outbursts were really perplexing too i think one of the very first ones is when they're giving the evidence as to why they think that the husband was in the passenger seat because of damages that were like done to his 
knees that like presumably were like hitting the dash when they had crashed into the water like they line up with dents and when her attorney is grilling that witness in terms of representing you know the autopsy findings her response is like wait a minute who's on trial here him like i thought i'm on trial and it's like <laughs> what are you talking about like she's trying to help you by like tearing apart this witness's testimony well, she has no pretensions, you know, and that's uh, that's a problem in polite society. And that's, you know, ultimately what we learn, you know, slowly as things are revealed. We learn that Kumiko had a rough life, you know. She was the daughter of a fisherman and then was later adopted by a guy that ran the ironworks, whatever that implies, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then she dropped out of high school, worked as a hostess, you know, dated this petty criminal. She owned her own nightclub at a certain point after she defrauded someone with right. her madame. Yeah. Um, real gotten games. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, she'd served jail time and had this really t tough life. So yeah, she is this character who really, like, she won me over right when Sahara sits down and Kumiko says, uh, I hate your face. I and then essentially says all institutional actors are the same they're bad i hate you you know and i was like oh i like she is this just like anti-authority freak yeah and our and our our view of her does start to to change there where we we start to like see through a lot of that you know that well she isn't like you know this just 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 heartless criminal that that she's someone who also has suffered that she's someone who has struggled we should say that she obviously denies that she tried to kill her husband, but she's also not really forthcoming about anything. You know, mm -hmm. when they ask her, like, did you do it? Why? What? And she's just like, I don't know. Like, that's not a very helpful answer, right? You know? No. Yeah, I guess you bringing that up makes me realize she herself doesn't really provide a counter narrative. She just says, like, no, I didn't do it. Right. Right. Exactly. She does not hide at all the fact that she wants to collect that fucking insurance money and yeah. she wants it now because she's entitled to it, you know? And that's like a huge sticking point. You would think, again, that, that you know, someone else, maybe thinking a little bit more savvy, might think, you know, whenever you can get me that insurance money, that'd be, that'd be nice, that'd be great, you know? But she's like, <laughs> give me that fucking check now! <laughs> but yeah, you know, we do then see the relationship and... Uh, her husband, who at first just seemed like this sort of like, oh, this this just innocent man, this innocent victim, we start to see that you know, hey, this this was not, this was not just you know the case of I think uh, you know this this gold digger that she's perceived to be that he actually was the one trying to to drive them together, to bring them together, to to mm -hmm. to almost force her to marry him. 
you know? Absolutely, right? So we actually do get flashback scenes as the Madame of the Blue Flag, Toki, uh, takes the stand, and she's a, a very comical, sort of surly witness, of course, you know? She refuses to tell them her age. I love <laughs> yeah, that. that's her yeah. introduction. <laughs> and so we get these flashbacks where, yes, we see that when they met in the Christmas of 1979, Fukutaro her dead husband, was widowed. And in fact, he hadn't even had sex for seven years uh, at that moment when they met. And he, you know, takes a fancy to Kumiko. And then, yeah, basically what is depicted, right, is, is this rich, widowed man becoming obsessed with her and desperately so Mm -hmm. we actually see in these flashbacks a previous trial in effect where we see the shirakawa family being like this gold this gold digger we need to get her out of here you know and they even present you know fukutaro with you know an ultimatum they have like a family intervention where they're like you need to leave her like the brewery's falling apart (laughs) yeah he's also running the brewery into the ground but i don't know if that has anything to do with her i think it's like totally independent yeah i mean the guy's just a fucking like just a sad sack kind of putz you know and i loved even the moment where she she eventually is uh describing their their first night of like love making or whatever together and she in her own way describes uh, a certain issue he has and as an older man performing you know he sort of struggles with with that and i loved like the shot of of him because he's just like curled up in bed like (laughs) just like sweaty his eyes wide open like yeah blankets pulled up all the way up to his chin yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you know and she again in that moment is trying to like Hey, it's all right. Like you're an older yeah. guy. Like it's this really humanizing moment for her mm-hmm. again, you know, where you do see affection on her yeah. part towards him, you know? She isn't just this sort of cold figure that's that's just in it only for his money or his fortune. Yeah, I mean, she's so casual about it. She even mentions like, "Oh, you want to give it another shot? You want to do a round 2 here, see what we can work with?" And then his response to that is just grabbing her arm and saying, marry me you know like we need to get married and she's like what she's completely disarmed by that which is surprising because throughout most of the film the accusations thrown at her don't tend to disarm her right like she she may react in a very volatile way but um that's one of the few moments where she seems like she was actually shocked by something that was uh, presented to her Yeah, and then it's very clear, you know, ultimately that, yeah, it turns sour as he becomes more like, you know, owning her, you know, more so than having this actual relationship and and the fact that we see her in a totally different state than we're seeing her in in the rest of the film i think yeah it really again sort of yeah like emotionally uh hits you know with what she's going through but of course in spite of all that she still uh you know she faces uh, a lot against her especially when in the court they bring up the Kennedy incident. Oh my God. In relation to her. <laughs> yeah, her that was insane. Case. Dude. Okay. <laughs> I, this, of course, was definitely my favorite part of the movie. But I we, knew it would be. It was yeah. <laughs> so we, we should introduce 
Toyosaki, Kumiko's ex-boyfriend, who is described as being a pimp uh, and is shown to be, yeah, this sort of like petty criminal goofball, you know? He is kind of like, yeah, just a, a comic foil to this whole situation. Like wannabe Yakuza. Yeah, total wannabe Yakuza, dressing very flashy. And he takes the stand in the case and sort of under the influence of both the press and the police hangs her out to dry by uh, telling a lot of falsehoods on the stand at that moment. And in particular, he uh, says, you know, well, yeah, she told me she was going to kill him. Uh, she told me she was going to do it like the Kennedy incident. Kennedy incident. Kennedy incident? Yes. I've heard of it in America. Edward Kennedy is a person who was in the car and was in the car and was in the car and in the car and was in the car Chappaquiddick incident in quotes <laughs> yeah, at the top uh, yeah. of the screen. So funny. And so it's there's yeah, it's just this incredible moment where this like wannabe Yakuza is like, you guys know when the Kennedy guy, you know, it was in all the papers, right? I love it because they, I think they say some guy named Edward Kennedy. Like, yeah, that's 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 how he's yeah. some guy named Edward Kennedy. Yeah, there's no like connection or context given to like relationship to the larger Kennedys. Just this thing that happened in America. Yeah, and it's a, just another little nugget of like yeah how you know the truth gets distorted right especially imagine what they read about, yeah. about that some incident. guy named edward kennedy like fucking killed a girl in a car accident he got away with it and she was using that as inspiration <laughs> <laughs> yeah and she loses it when he accuses her of that of like developing this extensive plan that he would then be a part of to then gain some money out of the situation she jumps up she attacks him she calls him a judas it really is insane that she was never charged with contempt of <laughs> because she it is just like non-stop interruptions oh, yeah. from her yeah she had a lot of leeway i was kind of surprised she throws a shoe at him <laughs> yeah, yeah the judge in in suspicion did not have as much control over his court as the judge in court and that is for damn sure uh he was letting so much slide yeah even i couldn't believe it and uh then we get to i probably already said something was my favorite part of the movie but really my favorite <laughs> part of the movie was the plunge test oh, and i'm yeah. sure you guys agree with me oh yeah uh, there's a sequence where they do a plunge test where they go out on a dock and they just drive a bunch of cars into the water and test them and we're treated to just very procedure-like details of this plunge test ultimately resulting in the screening of dailies where we see yeah. these cars crashing into the water from the inside as they're analyzing the breaking of the windshields felt like they were sitting around watching experimental film the uh, <laughs> one of them even has like an aesthetic emotional reaction when the water starts flooding in he's just like ah, oh, 
Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, he's, yeah, he's, like, yeah, he's like moved by the way it was captured. Very funny. And, and really, we should give some credit at this point to her attorney because she, you know, is one that's really pushed for the plunge test, for the forensic tests here. And she was also the one, as you mentioned, Marsh, that like does the brilliant reversal in court that, that leads her ex-boyfriend to implicate himself. You know, like she's driving it there. And I, I made a crack to you folks before about, you know, when you first delivered your picks to me. And I was like, oh, you know, like some artsy picks you boys brought here. No Perry Mason for the gauntlet boys. And yet when I was watching uh, suspicion here at this point. I was thinking of Perry Mason. I was suddenly sure. like, ah, that's some Perry Mason shit right yeah. there, you know? Because Perry Mason follows that formula of everyone is convinced of the defendant's guilt. You know, Perry Mason is a defense attorney. And for Perry Mason, like, he kind of gets jazzed up when the odds seemingly are sur- insurmountable. So I was kind of like, hey, Perry Mason would be proud yeah. right here. I think the film delivers on the some good like witness grilling, you know. There's a lot because so many people are just yeah playing into the the public narrative that's already been created and uh once Sahara, you know, gets gets deeper into the case, then she obviously is yeah more confident in sort of picking it all apart. You know, with her attorney, where we start to see some of those elements for her of like, what's 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 also driving her? You know, it's this idea that all the men walked away from this case, you know, yeah. that they considered this was, you know, they didn't want to tarnish their reputations to defend this, this awful, disgusting woman. And here, mm-hmm. Sahara, I think, you know, really as it, as it goes, we start to see that that's, that's something that's also driving her, is like taking on all these yeah. men. Because they they start to bond at this point, you know, after the plunge test. Now the pendulum really starts to swing, right? Because with the plunge test, it's basically, in spite of all the the odd reactions to the near experimental films that they, <laughs> that they watched, it is sort of revealed that like any conclusions you can draw from this initial crash sort of fly out the window again no pun intended here the windshield right they they sort of walk away and go well fuck i guess it could have happened any other way it could have happened this way could have happened that way so much of the case is based on placing all these meaning on individual objects like there's a loose shoe there's um the wrench the wrench and um they keep making you know reference to the fact like well if she wanted to break the windshield why wouldn't she have left a hammer in the car instead of just a wrench uh but the plunge test does seem to reveal that you know no matter what whether the windshield would shatter on first impact or if just the water pressure eventually would make the windshield sort of shatter and pop out it's inconclusive as to whether she would have actually needed to use that tool and have planted it there in order to to break the window open but then it's later when her attorney herself almost has a near collision when an empty can of juice while she's driving around town, rolls under her brake pedal. And as she's driving, she's unable to stop. And she sort of pulls off the road and nearly collides with like a a crane. But then it's in that moment where she has like that light bulb effect, essentially, where she notices like, wait a second, like I, I was unable to stop here. And then she starts thinking about those objects again. And she thinks about that shoe and how big that shoe is. And she ends up measuring and starts to develop this hypothesis that perhaps this shoe was placed with the wrench tightening it into position so that the car would not be able to stop 
as if it was some element of sabotage, whether it's self-sabotage or sabotage against the other driver, that would ensure that the car would end up in the water or at least wreck in a terrible way. Yeah, all that circumstantial evidence Sahara starts to actually try to explain, you know, mm-hmm. whereas everyone else has just relied on on the fact that it is circumstantial. And I mean, that's how like the testimony unfolds, even when when they're talking about the wrench and be like, well, yeah, she used the fucking wrench to smash the windshield. It was all premeditated. And, and Sahara is like, like that point you brought up with the hammer, like, yeah, but. If, if she had better objects, wouldn't she have picked a better object? And all they can say is, well, it's like, it's not impossible that you could smash the windshield. But Sahara is is actually, you know, she's not trying to deal in these sort of like questions. She's, she's trying to find answers. And she figures out ultimately the answer by reflecting on her own life, which we get a glimpse of. Because as we are shown... She is divorced as well. So she's not just this, you know, badass defense attorney, but a single mother who uh, she only gets to see her daughter once a month. The dad got custody. Mm -hmm. And the dad also has a hot, young, new girlfriend who he's trying, like, keeps trying to introduce to Sahara. And she's like, I don't want to meet her. Like, leave me alone. (laughs) And so she's struggling with this family situation of separation and having a child uh, as she has a daughter. And ultimately, this causes her to look into the family situation of the deceased, right? And there is uh, a son, from the previous marriage, right? The the widowed dead man, ha- of course, has a son. And so Sahara starts thinking, this little fucker knows something, mm-hmm. slash uh, is involved or whatever. Uh, so she starts, yeah, you know, pulling on that uh, thread and, and unravels it all, right? Because it is, yeah, this situation of child custody uh, that went on in the, you know, the brewing dynasty uh, where, like, the grandmother basically, like, took the kid away. In that moment, it it kind of reminded me of of a film that we talked about I feel now like years ago, but but an earlier <laughs> film we discussed on the podcast, The Silence Surrounding Christine M, where you know we have this this uh, defense attorney, and we get the glimpses into her life and how that makes her reflect upon the case that yeah. she herself is is taking part in and representing, you know, and yes, that this this spurs her then to basically like confront the son and say what the fuck went on, you know, tell me, tell me what happened and, and drag him ultimately into court to deliver that Perry Mason bombshell. (laughs) Yeah. The final explosion. That sequence was also both extremely funny and super irritating. Um, and it, it comes a lot from that boy's performance where he's like hunched over and like nearly shivering in fear. And, you know, they, they, they go, you know, they run him through the gauntlet itself of the legal system where they say like, you, you know, if you lie here, like you were going to face punishment and trouble for, for a very long time Mm -hmm. after this. Yeah. You want to carry this with you the rest of your life. Right. So then it becomes, you know, one of those like classic sequences of like, he's about to reveal something he's too afraid to. And they're just like constantly yelling at him, like spit it out, spit it out. And I felt the same way, like to the point where I was, 
like irritated. I was like, come on, like you, you little shit. Just like yeah. say it. He was like, a real dirky. Yeah, yeah, totally. A real dirky. Absolute dirky moment. Yeah, he's just like hunched over, shivering, and like they 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 really milk it with the camera. You know, we're slowly moving towards him, seeing like, yeah, it's just like soft faces. He's like, you'd think he's gonna break it out and just like just like sweating profusely, you know? But he does <laughs> deliver the bombshell. He does reveal what was inside a letter his father had given him that he had then burned at the funeral because he didn't want anybody to know of the contents in there. And that was the father admitting that it was his plan all along to kill his wife and rid everyone of her poison. And himself. And himself. It was a classic forced double suicide. Yes. The old forced double suicide. Yeah. Yeah. And so ultimately, she gets off from at least this particular case. But it's not all roses for Kumako, as Mm -hmm. she quickly discovers that she's not going to get any money because of, you know, bureaucratic uh, nonsense, essentially. Well, uh, again, it's a brilliant turn. Like, the the construction of her character, of Kumiko, and her journey, and and the audience's feelings towards her, and, and our relationship with her, like, it, it, it just is constantly shifting. And it's so great, you know, that, that we have this triumphant moment where, yes, as the audience, we, we are like, yeah, you know what, she may have been... a Bit, a, a bit crass, but but uh, damn it, she's innocent. Let's get her off. And it's this like victory, you know, when she is exonerated in the courtroom. But then <laughs> yeah, we immediately go to her afterwards celebrating. And her celebration is again just so obnoxious it's it's like <laughs> yeah. immediately we're like oh this fucking yeah it turns sucks. into wine night with the girls at like yeah. a club and she is just like a loose cannon she's just going off and is just like celebrating you know but she does then bring up the fact that she is going to be out some money and she's like referring to her attorney and saying like can't you figure out some loophole here like come on take care of me and she's like i did take care of you like you were you're not going to prison she's like oh come on like you've it's you not enough something out you know maybe we could sue the family for what they put me through you know right exactly yeah and very pointedly uh in this final scene where uh sahara confronts kumiko and they you know sort of wrap everything up there is a crucial you know question that sahara asks she says could you have killed him or not? You know, sort of asking what was on everyone's mind. And she says, I think I would have, given the <laughs> chance, right? And they're dressed in black and white. Kumiko's wearing black, Sahara's wearing white. Uh, and then Kumiko dumps a bottle of red wine on her uh, while talking a bunch of shit to All her face. All over her white suit, yeah. 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 And she, yeah, so she sort of, you know, gives this drunken, you know, speech or whatever where she, uh, she says, I'm going to continue to live my life in my own way, thankful I didn't become a woman like you. And it's like a really harsh moment, you know, because our sympathies have totally reversed through the course of this film and then ultimately, times, yeah, yeah, you're just like getting, you know, punched in the stomach again. Right. She didn't 
kill her husband, but she, she admits to being a terrible person who only thinks about herself. And again, I'll tell you, Perry Mason never got somebody off and, and got a bottle of wine dumped on his pressed suit <laughs> no. for his troubles. I mean, horrible. <laughs> and she did that. But but also then Sahara grabs a glass and just throws it right in her face and is like, fuck you, you toxic bitch. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is a moment of mutual respect. I mean, it is like these, yeah, yeah. these different ways of living. Two different women, they're both strong, independent women in totally different directions. Yes. Yeah. And, and ultimately true. reveals, again, I think like Sahara's, her relationship with the legal system and what being a defense attorney means to her. Because even after that horrible exchange of them just like throwing booze on each other and, and, and spitting in each other's faces, basically, Kumiko says something like, well, you know what? Fine. And maybe I'm just going to go out there and maybe I will find a rich husband and maybe I will kill him and I'll get my fortune somehow. And then Sahara, as she's walking out, turns and says, and I'll be there to defend you when you do. You that's know? right. And that's what she leaves it on. This sort of like, hey, even a person like you mm-hmm. deserves representation yeah. from someone like me. It does end on that positive note that you brought up, Andy. Everyone deserves to be defended, right? No matter who or, or what they are. Does the legal thriller or courtroom drama uphold the ideas of the law? And I think, yeah, this film does right i mean i feel like one thing that both of you hit on really well for this film is how the defense attorney in situations in her own life then sort of used that real life experience to restruct the narrative to like kind of turn the narrative on its head in the courtroom and so she brought so much of her own lived experience into the case and into her argument while in court it does something a little bit different and that's everyone already comes in with these preconceived notions about justice and how things should work, and then we're treated to sequences of them outside of the courtroom that sort of illustrate how these worldviews are shaped because of their environment, whether it's their caste or their class in Indian society, um, and the people they associate themselves with. And I would also say, too, in the case of suspicion, um, you know, we see how everyone starts to develop very personal connections to the case and to what's going on, you know, that, that there are a lot of people who have personal stakes in this. But I also think that a lot of the scenes that you're talking about in court do a, do a great job of showing that that in quite the opposite way, some people are very dispassionately <laughs> like mm-hmm. connected to, to what's going on, to the stakes, to people's lives, to what's happening, to the drama that, that the audience is, is certainly wrapped up in. Right. And a lot of that comes through, too, with the way the film is shot. And I think that that's probably a good starting point to sort of enter into this courtroom and this the trial as it's unfolding in the film. And this film visually is not dramatic in the way that suspicion is dramatic or your typical courtroom drama is you know a very dramatic camera that's moving around at those intense moments when there are those those explosions of information when something like a bombshell is revealed this film is very distant in the way that it's capturing all of these settings and all of these people as they're moving throughout different parts of Mumbai and then within the courtroom. It's There's no music that's swelling at any point. Instead, we're treated to just the natural soundscape of Mumbai. We're always hearing the sounds of horns. We're hearing people bustling about. It's a very lively and active environment. Um, and there's no music to guide our emotions as we're engaging with all of these things. And the camera is typically always locked down. It's never panning or tilting 
tilting. And we're sort of presented with these tableaus where I think one of the great achievements of the film is he's really good at directing the action as to like where we should be looking at all times. So initially that's brought up when we're with our protagonist, Narayanas. He's like heading to his production and he's doing his show. Um, and we get this like incredible wide shot as he's singing his latest leftist anthem in front of a very willing crowd. But then the police creep in and we start seeing everyone around the image, people on the balcony who are watching the production and whispering as to what they think might be going going on and then other conversations that are occurring throughout all of this as he's then sort of absorbed by the city and taken into the legal system itself. And man, he is in that opening like he is spitting fire. Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, uh, his song is incredible. Very spirited, very fiery. He's basically calling for revolution. And we do, yeah, like it, it to open the movie in that way was also, you know, to me, it was, it was, it was awesome. Suspicion's kind of muted, you know, it's a lot of like browns and blacks and dark mm -hmm. greens, you know, and this film is popping. It is extremely colorful, right? And so we're treated to, yeah, like a radical leftist musical number in this like eye-popping color within the first five minutes. You know, you say calls for revolution, but, but I think also like very, very clearly and very cleverly, um, it, it sort of is this kind of like opening statement, if you will, you know, that can that is condemning the entire society and, and is, as we will discover, more or less predicting like what is to ultimately like happen, you know, because as he's sort of singing about, you know, how people are easily distracted by this or that, he uses the, at least in the translation on the subtitles, like the, the razzle dazzle and razzmatazz of the spectacle, there's injustices taking place everywhere, you know, that while you're over here, you know, distracted by this or that, or, uh, you know, pleasures and, 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 and maybe, you know, financial gain, people are suffering and people are dying and people are left to, to sort of rot in a casteist, racist, nationalist society, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it, it is, it is a brilliant opening for the film because it also seemingly comes out of nowhere for this guy, you know, and you've described, <laughs> yeah. I think, how, how it's how it's shot, you know, these nice sequence shots. I mean, he is just this, this like, seemingly very gentle old man, you know? And in fact, we're first introduced to him uh, teaching children, you know? Yeah, he's he's like a teacher. reading a story about butterflies. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like, it's just this very, like, sweet old man. And then there he goes, and it is like, 
God damn. Like, holy shit. It is, it is fire. It's in that moment, too, that reveals the case that's actually being put up against him. You know, the film in the trial, he's, he's put on trial for abetting suicide. But in reality, he's just being put on trial for being vocally opposed to the status quo and the way things are set up in India. I was like, oh, yeah, this guy's like an enemy of the state. That's why he's being arrested. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we learn it's because he allegedly caused the suicide of this sewer worker. And then we're like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. like, uh, OK, right. And so it does immediately strike that tone also where, yes, this is very real, but it's also this Kafka-esque Trump dump charge. Yeah, yeah, this thing that's so ridiculous, right? That that's where we start. Yeah. Right. In the case of suspicion, like we start in a place of like not really knowing and 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 being unsure of and and maybe maybe suspecting ourselves that she did have something to do with it. But here, yeah, it's very, very clear. Even though we didn't see this this supposed suicide take place, we're like, come on. <laughs> no way. This guy heard a song. What? Yeah, Killed himself? Right. Like, the, <laughs> no even, even if that was the case, is that a crime? Anyway, a lot yeah. of questions, right? And so it's immediately absurd. And ultimately, you know, while it's focusing very intensely on this single case, visually it's constantly decentering that case. There's almost two mm-hmm. films happening at the same time. And I think that's one of the really interesting things going on here where we're seeing the system at large in these tableaus, as Ryan said. And so we're not just seeing our guy, the folk singer. We're seeing all the people waiting to be tried. And in certain circumstances, scenes will linger beyond the main plot, which will leave the room, and then we'll see a little bit of another uh, case coming up. And so ultimately, right, like that opening song, the film is clear in its intentions, right? This is about these systems of oppression, these institutions of oppression, and it's constantly trying to like widen the scope. And I like the phrase that you use there, like decentered, because, you know, even in the, the sort of like mise-en-scene and the blocking, this figure who in a lot of legal films, you know, you would think is like the central figure, he's often in those like tableau, as you as you call them, Ryan, like positioned in the background or to the extreme of the frame. He is not the, the, the main focus often in many of the, the shots. Like he's just another person in this, you know, sessions court or whatever. This is a film that never grants you a close up for his reaction as the trial is unfolding. We're only ever really looking at those who are speaking, whether they're witnesses or whether they're the defense attorney or the public prosecutor or the judge. And typically like those shots last throughout their entire speeches. We are never cutting to reactions when those sequences are happening. And I think it's important then to, you know, introduce his defense attorney, Vinay, who is, as we described initially at the beginning, in the idea of often that the defense attorneys in, in courtroom dramas are typically rather progressive or trying to bring forth sort of liberal ideals into, into their own 
cases, that's very much him. And it's interesting because Tamhanhe places him as upper middle class. We are presented with um, a few scenes that establish his sort of track record and his history as a rather progressive lawyer. He like attends a, a town hall where he talks about how he's represented various people in the Kalyan bomb case and how it's just five years he's been spending of, of fighting for a particular individual, but that how the system, the way it's set up is constantly swallowing him and even if it momentarily spits him back up it'll like bite and bring him back in and another thing i think is worth noting about the way this film feels to watch is there's a particular gag in that scene that is rather funny where his speech is interrupted because some guys shuffle in because they need to like set up you know a fan so it can you know clear the air in the room and this is a film that has a sense of humor because it does acknowledge that these systems are extremely absurd. And like Marsh already invoked um, the name Kafka, and I think it's 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 always been my reading of Kafka. I've always I've always found Kafka to be like a hilarious writer because mm-hmm. again, I think it's this idea when when facing this b- bureaucracy that's taken to the level of like an absurd nightmare. If you if you don't laugh, you yourself will go insane, right? You, you have to sort of laugh because if you if you yeah. don't, you know, you, you're going to you're going to implode. <laughs> you're going to fall apart. You know, well, let's talk about Vinay for a, a second here. Right. Because I love that we're, we're shown a couple sequences where he's just driving alone in his car listening to jazz. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I wasn't really like sure what was going on with with these scenes of the lawyer until all of the sudden, right? We now start seeing uh, scenes of the prosecutor at home, and the film yes. develops a dialectic between their ideologies and their home lives, and how that comes into play with right their profession as lawyers and what their yeah what their completely opposed i guess sort of missions are i think there's a one of the key early moments between both of them like in their opening statements that show like these differing worldviews and then how those are deepened in these sequences set outside of the courtroom are when the defense attorney brings up the fact that you know some of these like previous charges he's had or the, just the current ones he's facing with abetment of suicide are precedents that have been set up in the 1870s. He's like referring to British colonialist rules and decrees that were set down. And he even mentions like in a contemporary post-colonial India, how is this of any relevance? And she says like, that's like not what we're here to discuss. Mm-hmm. The relevance doesn't matter. It's the law. I'm here representing the law, and that is how she's structuring her argument. And it's in those scenes that are outside of the courtroom with her that are revealing then how she has been conditioned to think of the world that way, to think of very like structured India. Um, th- like she's not second guessing the fact that there are colonial laws that are still adhered to in the court system that she's a part of. Well, yeah, she is seeing this uh, just totally through the lens of law books or whatever, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's it for her. And all she's doing is just going like, precedent, this, this is it. This is what the law says. This is what it is. And this is what we're here for. And and that's it. It doesn't matter who this person is. She, she doesn't care, you know? But also, the, she's sort of like 
whatever. She's a prosecutor. So from the prosecutor's perspective, every person that goes in front of a prosecutor is fucking guilty. And it doesn't matter. Their job is simply to win that case. Right. Like, it doesn't matter. And there's even that moment in one of the spaces in between where she's sort of talking with a couple other lawyers, you know, and, and she's more or less saying that, like, what's all this bullshit? Just fucking throw them in jail already. And one of the guys is like, hey, make her a judge, you know, like, because it's like, that's it for her. It's just it's 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 very black and white. Yeah, for it's her. in fact like that scene to me revealed how impersonal it actually was and is for her because she says it's always the same old stories, you know, in reference to this poor guy, right, who's on trial, right? Throw him in jail for 20 years and forget about it. And the prosecutors that she's like having lunch with they're all specifically talking about the speed of judges. They're like, this judge is good because he gets more cases through per day. No, that judge is bad because he's slow, you know? And they're honestly, yeah, they're just like robots. Like, just rack them up, lock them up, lock them up, you know? Like, and it was really like, whoa, you know? Uh, especially because at, in her home life, it seems so compartmentalized. Like, she doesn't bring her work home. Whereas Vinay, who's this single 30-something crusading progressive lawyer who does, like, human rights law and, you know, again, yeah, defends quote-unquote terrorists or enemies of the Indian state, he's, you know, has no life. The case is his life. Yeah. Right. And so even though they're both sort of middle class, upper middle class, they have totally different like, yeah, like work life balances, family situations uh, and so forth. Yeah. And I think one of the important scenes with the public prosecutor is when she attends a live theatrical performance. And this scene... Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, it's a loaded sequence, and it's a sequence that I think, though, gets to the heart at one of the arguments that he's putting forth about the prejudices that people are bringing into the courtroom without realizing it, right? So she's attending a show where, on stage, we're presented with, like, a comedic routine about a daughter introducing her boyfriend, like her potential new spouse, to her father. And throughout, the source of comedy is mocking the fact that he's like speaking incorrectly or presenting himself in a non-traditional way, and the fact that he is an immigrant. That's central to the comedy of that sequence. And eventually, after the women are sort of separated from the scene and the father can grill this young man, he kind of tosses him off stage and then he directly addresses the audience about the terror that is being wrought <laughs> on their lives by immigrants and how those immigrants are causing like the Tucker jobs exactly stealing <laughs> opportunities from them and then like posing threats to their children and the audience reacts with a rapturous applause and so she's yeah. a part of that audience and I think that that's key because I agree that she's not personally involved with the case but I do think that she has sort of these inherent prejudices against people like Narayan who is a leftist performer yeah she thinks he should go to jail for 20 years for being a folk singer yeah 
Right. Yeah, she's a total reactionary psycho, but she treats the case like she's just like going to work at any job, you know? Like mm-hmm. I would say that's the distinction, but I think that's ultimately what Tamane is is sort of getting at with the certain political or ideological components of entertainment that are embedded within society, right? And are not quote unquote problematic or things to be arrested over when, you know, you're just like, yeah, you know, speaking uh, hateful rhetoric against immigrants. That's everyone's having a laugh. That's family entertainment that her and her family go to. Whereas mm-hmm. on the flip side, of course, Narayan is like, yes, this radical leftists. And I think we should obviously point out 2014 is basically when Modi came to power, right? And I don't think that's a coincidence for like everything that's being (laughs) depicted in this film in that kind of, yes, like nationalism and paramilitary sort of bullshit. Yeah. For me, it goes back to like that opening again, like the opening song that, and I, I said, you know, I, I invoked, you know, the spectacle. And I think that that's also like what, what we're seeing in these moments. You know, I go back to Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle. And one of, I think the the best lines in that, in that text is, you know, the spectacle is the guardian of sleep. And, 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 you know, what he's trying to do is, is wake people up, you know, wake people up to the injustices and, and look past the spectacle. If you look through it, if you, if you, if you can do that, then you will start to see how, how none of this fucking adds up and, and we're all suffering here. I go back to the prosecutor and it's like, she's sleepwalking. She's going Mm -hmm. through the motions. And, and what is she doing after the, after she goes home from work? She's sitting there on, on public transportation talking about saris and talking about diets and her husband's diabetes and like all this stuff. Right. And it's like her family is like watching some, some obviously like bad quote unquote bad television at home when we're introduced (laughs) to them. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, for her, like, yeah, she is, she is just sleepwalking through these proceedings. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. You, You think about it. Right. And if, if like, yes, this dramatic win in the courtroom, it, it also wouldn't mean shit to her. She would just kind of be like, all right, whatever. Where's the next one? You know, like, uh, he got off on that one. Okay, well, there's going to be somebody else. Or, again, we'll get him on something else. We'll we'll figure it out. He'll be back, you know? Oh, <laughs> like, most certainly. It doesn't yeah. matter, you know? And, and so she doesn't see him even as a person. You know, he is simply a, a, a file that's been placed in front of her. You know, a file that is uh, also for the police sometimes hard to find in another stack of other files, right? You know, and I think I even read that the the director had said, you know, one of his choices in casting the film was to use a lot of non-professionals. Like, he wanted to use non-professionals and, uh, you know, first-timers or newcomers or whatever. You know, he didn't want them to be acting, right? He wanted them to be sort of like, awkward and and cold and and kind of hollow in a lot of like their line deliveries like on the total flip side this isn't suspicion this isn't perry mason where you know an attorney's gonna stand up and and give a very dramatic reading of the events and and as they lay out the case you know they're gonna be intoning with great pathos not at all when she's like reading through the 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 you know the accusations and everything i mean she's just like she's just spitting it out as fast as she possibly can because she spit it out 
a hundred fucking times before and she'll spit it out a hundred times again. Right. It did sound with her delivery on some of that like she was just reading like a, a pre-written statement by the police, you know, essentially yeah. just sort of like very matter of fact, uh, you know, laying it out there. There's also a quality with the defense attorney in terms of in those moments where you'd expect the idealistic lawyer to reveal those pathological arguments and get really fired up are usually when he just accepts defeat and steps back because he's extremely realistic about the scenario. You know, he's constantly fighting for bail because the health of Narayan is like at stake. He's like getting rather sickly while he's in jail. When those are rejected, he he doesn't have this feverish response he just sort of bows you know he like kind of has to accept his loss and close because he knows realistically if he's gonna like poke and prod it's only gonna cause like more troubles for him and his client down the road well and we also really i think start to get into in you know the, the director's own words like idea of a judicial nightmare because it isn't even about like dramatic events taking place in the courtroom it's about delay it's about mm -hmm. you know and we see like a lot of time like go by uh, presumably as we're just given court dates the next hearing the next court yep. date and it, mm -hmm. it always seems like it's a month away and the, whatever seems to be taking place whatever motion is being kicked around at that time or or being litigated nothing ever really gets solved most of what's being discussed throughout seems to simply be whether or not we can get him bail before the trial even takes place, you know? Right. It's it's like pre-trial motions and every single every single event is being separated by by weeks or months or whatever, you know? And 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 that's I think where like again for me like the the, the true like hell of this system is is being displayed for us, and again the the, the Kafkaesque element of of you know you you think you took a step forward, but but really you just took two steps backwards, you know. Right. I mean, yeah. There's that really tragic moment where you know, as we had discussed, sometimes the film keeps going after the actual plot has literally walked out of the room and we get you know glimpses at some of these other cases a woman is about to present her case and the judge immediately shuts it down and he's like you're not wearing sleeves like you, you, <laughs> yeah. you've got like a, a blue sleeveless shirt on like that's against code that you're wearing garish dress in my courtroom like i won't have it yeah. you gotta go we're gonna reset we're gonna have we're gonna pick a different date it's absurd <laughs> right you know and she's like clearly crushed over it but yeah, and then, you know, the judge himself is, he's a strict adherer to that code. You have these people that demand respect for for decorum in, in, in the court, you know, and in this legal mm -hmm. system, in court, 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 right? And yet, you know, these people, these judges, these prosecutors, whatever, they show absolutely zero fucking respect for any other human being that walks in there like yeah. i mean that's that's the total imbalance again you know the scales of justice or whatever but there's this total imbalance between like you must respect the court and you must respect the court's time and our rules and our laws but we're not going to respect anything that that actualizes you in any way as a person you know you're sick 
tough shit. Like you should, you should have thought about that before you, you sang in front of 30 people or whatever. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Again, so much of this is, it's seemingly on autopilot because of the way like the court is structured. And you think about how even at one point the defense attorney brings up the fact that he learns that one of their key witnesses is just a stock witness. Yeah. It's someone who has appeared in four other cases recently as just being a witness in a crowd who can seemingly claim with great accuracy something that was fed to him, like certain information. Because that's the thing. They have like individuals who say, yeah, I definitely saw him singing this song. Or, like, I was there. And uh, yeah, he said, a sewage workers go commit suicide. <laughs> uh, and like, they take the cop, yeah. you know, and they say, like, listen, like, this, this is just a stock witness. You've brought this guy in before. And there's just gross incompetence all across the board. But they think that they can float through it all if it's all on autopilot and it's all working the way it's designed to work. And that's where, again, the similarity between these films about how fiction becomes fact I found really interesting in court is how we see what the judge takes away from the witnesses as after every witness it cuts to the judge and his, you know, clerk, this very disinterested woman who's often on an iPhone uh, in many of the scenes. Mm -hmm. But uh, the judge then translates like what has just happened to the official court record and what he is summarizing you know, it's not necessarily maybe the truth of, of what has just been revealed. Yeah. Certainly right? not what we heard. Yeah, certainly not no, what I yeah, heard, right? He's, lots of subtle differences. Yeah, and just the way that language, you know, reinforces, you know, his power, the court's power, the law's power by the way that he simply describes what has just transpired. Uh, and similar to, yeah, the yarns spun by the press and the police uh, in suspicion. As this narrative is being created and, you know, throughout the trial, the main idea that they're that they're claiming um, against Narayan is that the sewage worker knows the risks. He knows how he should conduct himself when he's working. He knows about the, the dangers of the gas. He like he would be taking the precaution. So it is there's no question that this act had to have been suicide and something must have spurred him to do it. If he was to go down there without his gear and, and fall, it could only be the result of a suicide. But then the wife returns because initially the wife had fled town out of fear, but she's brought up to the stand. And then all of a sudden the class element kind of rears its head and the whole case is turned upside down. She's like, well, no, he, no, he never wore gear when he went down there he, he actually was never had a provided test. any <laughs> yeah he was never provided any gear when he went down there and so his way of operating was he had a test which he called the cockroach test where he would toss a rock into the sewer and if he saw a cockroach scurry out it was okay to go in but that if the cockroach <laughs> didn't scurry out then it was a holiday yeah. he stayed home and he knew it was too dangerous for him to be down there we also learned that he's lost an eye because of the fumes that were in the sewer because again he hasn't been using gear every day his protective gear he uses to go down there is alcohol in order to bear <laughs> the stench and to bear the labor so then once that new narrative and he becomes more of a character like a realistic character here we start to realize is that like in his effort to 
spare the stench. He was he was drunk and he fell and he didn't have the gear. He was knocked out and he just died. So it was not a case of suicide. That's the bombshell, right? That's the big, the the, the surprise witness who who suddenly turns the whole case around. And in so many courtroom dramas, even in in the film we just talked about, suspicion, like it is delivered in such a way where it's like shocking. You know, you the, the court reporters storm out. Oh, you know, the big break in the case. And, <laughs> you know, the, the prosecution are scrambling with their papers like, God damn, the whole trial just fell apart. You know, our whole case collapsed. But in this, even in that moment, as much of a bombshell as that is for us, as much of a gotcha as that is for the defense, it is, again, all that information is received in the most cold, dispassionate, hollow way by everyone in that courtroom. No one is shocked by it. No one is upset to discover this. You know, there's no murmuring in the room of how could any human being suffer in such a horrible way? It's just kind of like, oh, well, I guess that's uh, that's that. And even the judge is kind of like, well, all right, well, that's... Uh, new information and and is almost like chiding the prosecution with kind of like well i guess that's the end of your case you know so yeah it's it's empty that victory that you think you have just achieved that they have just achieved it just kind of lands with like a, a soft little thud you know it's not an explosion cuz then immediately afterwards when the defense attorney is driving her home instead of some sort of conversation about like the truth being revealed and how brave it was of her to arrive instead as he's driving her home she just mentions like do you can you please help me find work do you know of any work i will do anything i just need work right now and she's afraid of having to reappear in court because whatever job she gets she will not be able to miss for a day in court so uh, mm-hmm. again this element of class is reinforced and we should also say yeah when she's on the stand and is being kind of like you know grilled by the public prosecutor the issue of language is very present as it often is in the film there's multiple languages being spoken in the film and even contentious back and forths between the lawyers about what are we speaking hindi are we speaking english or what are we doing here you know mm-hmm. um and so in that car scene she uh, he tells her to put on her her seatbelt and she doesn't know what a seatbelt is, right? He kind right. of has to like instruct her, right? And and again, it 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 humanizes and deepens everything in terms of yes, the extreme wealth disparity that's going on here from not like not only you know what we've been seeing of the lawyers' lives and even uh, Narayan's life, but now yes, like someone even lower on the totem pole uh, and just, yeah, really, again, just expands the film. It's ultimately like in this moment where, you know, if it wasn't already clear enough, it's it's really revealed that like, you know, th- this legal system didn't even give a shit about this guy's death. It wasn't about this guy's death. It was about, you know, using this guy's death as a means of railroading to simply shut him up to shut up his like leftist songs. And it's like, Oh, if we can just connect this guy's death to this dude, like we can get him out of here. But you know, in that moment, again, where we see this like horrible suffering that this dude went through that, that actually should reveal some, some actual court cases that should start to probably take place, you know, maybe civil actions and whatever, you know, corruption, this, that, or the other, you know, the whole system should be on trial. Like it's, it's not, it's just kind of like, ah, crap. Well, we lost our, we lost the the opportunity we had to like get this guy in jail. So, 
I guess we'll have to let him go on this one. Yeah, because I mean, the outcome of this is he's he's granted a bail, but it's an absurdly high bail. It's something that he couldn't afford on his own. So his defense attorney steps in to pay it so he can get him out of jail and to sort of like get himself back to health. Yeah, because the case isn't over, right? The case is still going on. He simply was allowed bail after all of this, after the bombshell. This was all pretrial motions. Yeah, after all this fake bullshit that the prosecution brought. No. And then, you know, yes, the defense attorney, 100,000 rupees of his own upper middle class liberal money uh, down the drain. And our guy responds by saying like, okay, like figure, you know, he, he talks to like one of his, his band mates and he says like, set up something so we can pay him back like as quickly as possible. You know, he won't take the charity. He's like, we'll, we'll get this taken care of. But again, our guy ever the rebel rouser, you know, he's only free for a couple of days and immediately he's printing new pamphlets called a history of humiliation. And boy, oh boy, the court doesn't like this. <laughs> they nab him again. The moment, like, you, you'd think his voice was crushed by this, like, brutal Kafkaesque nightmare that he suffered through for multiple months. But no, he's being outspoken again. And to this is just fueling his flames of this is the nightmare that uh, is the state of India right now. And yep, he's thrown back into prison. Well, before that, too, he doubles down and he gives another musical performance, which is uh, a really great moment because he's incorporated what has just happened to him in the court and in prison into the song he is now singing. Uh, And he gives this rousing performance to a fairly indifferent uh, crowd in this kind of outdoor venue. And again, to your point about the spectacle, Andy, right as he leaves the stage, again, the camera lingers and it's like, all right, now it's time for the 15 year old dance squad girls. Uh, And they just like bring out these teen girls who just start like (laughs) dancing to contemporary dance music. uh, And like the crowd is going nuts and people are like getting out of their seats. So there's also this, yeah, like this guy's out here risking life and limb uh, for people who are just there to see the dance squad girls right (laughs) Right, yeah Uh, he's just the the built the spill opener right (laughs) yeah unfortunately yeah and so again it's uh he's he's taken in because ultimately yeah like he's gonna be arrested for literally anything he does and so he 
publish, publishes his pamphlet in an extended uh, sequence in a print shop where we're like treated mm-hmm. to the labor of all these like magazines and newspapers being made. All this bustle, all this life, all these people with their own you know, trials and tribulations that they're going through, uh, so much so that like this dude and, and, and his journey is just like, it's just, you know, one of you used the phrase earlier, just like swallowed up. Like, yeah, it is. It's swallowed up and it's lost. And whether it's because the camera's lingering so that we see the, the following act or, or we see all these other people who are just, you know, they got their own problems, man. You know, they got their own shit. Like no one's rallying around this guy, you know, he's printing out all these, these pamphlets and he's looking at him, but like, who the hell is yeah. even going to read those things? You know? know, like, right. I mean, the cops immediately show up, they throw him back in the slammer and, and his, his ordeal is, is just going to start all yeah. over. So now again. he's got a second trial going on concurrently with the first trial. And this one is a bit more serious as they throw the book at him on basically terrorism charges. Uh, Sedition. Yeah, yeah. For, for his pamphlet uh, and accuse him very pointedly of, yes, striking terror in the people. And the prosecutor really goes overboard because she reads the entire statute. So at a certain point, she's just rattling off things that terrorists use as weapons. According to UAPA Amendment Act 2008, a person can be charged if he does any act with the intent to threaten or likely to threaten the unity, integrity, security or sovereignty of India or with the intent to strike terror or likely to strike terror in the people or any section of the people in India or in any foreign country by using bombs, dynamite or other explosive substances or inflammable substances or firearms or other lethal weapons or poisons or noxious gases or other chemicals or by any other substances, whether biological, radioactive, nuclear, or otherwise of a hazardous nature, or by any other means of whatever nature, or likely to cause A, death of or injuries to any person or persons, or B, loss of or damage to or destruction of property, or C, disruption of supplies or services essential to the life of the community in India or in any foreign country. Sir, where is the bomb? Where are the lethal weapons? Really, really excessive uh, sort of thing going on there. But she does keep repeating in the clause, right, the unity, integrity, security, and sovereignty of India. And ultimately saying, yes, this guy is a threat to, to all of those things. You know, he needs to go away. And to add insult to injury as if it wasn't bad enough, this whole journey, this whole film had been him essentially just fighting for bail because the trial keeps going on. He is now not granted bail because of the severity of these charges. And not only that, but the court is going on summer vacation. So his trial will have to be resumed a bit later. Um, And it's a tragic scene because then the court sort of, you see it all shut down. You see everyone file out. The lights are turned off. Everything's put into order. And we're left with a dark, empty courtroom as it fades to black. And and in addition, again, you know, the blocking, the, the framing, Narayan is like all the way in the, the immediate foreground. So he's basically in, in the, 
the the gallery or whatever and and you know he has his back to the camera and he's just seated in there and so as this is all unfolding like he's just sitting there not a participant in anything that's happening to his life but but a spectator right he's just a spectator there's nothing that he can do himself but sit and watch and watch this this nightmare continue as yes people are shuffled out one one by one mm-hmm. and 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 the lights go dim on his on his uh on his fate perhaps and that's when i realized personally like or at least more clearly that this is a film about absences you know as much as it is about anything right it's like what is implied with you know who we're seeing and when we're seeing them right and and this leads up to the the client finale denouement of the film right we were left with this lingering shot of an empty courtroom that slowly fades to black and then we're on vacation yeah we get a we get an epilogue because i'm sure Mm -hmm. you both like me and anybody that would watch this movie would sit there and as that courtroom dims you'd go what a perfect note to end the film on. And yet, as you're pointing out, Marsh, it doesn't. We get this epilogue where I think really, really the film actually puts the final exclamation point on. on yeah, on I think the epilogue is like quite an accomplishment. <laughs> like I really liked the film quite a lot while watching and I was like pretty stunned by the epilogue. Oh, it's um, amazing. It's, it's really incredible because yes, we are watching the vacation of the judge. <laughs> Um, and there's just so much that's revealed in all of these encounters. I mean, the one that really stands out to me in terms of him being a representative of the law in India, right? We get him sitting with his son, just like sitting on a bench or a swing, and then his grandson arrives and like hands them something, and then he kind of scurries off. He does this wordlessly, and the judge then mentions to his son, like, oh, is he still, is he still not speaking? He's like, no, he's, we, we have to get him to a, a new therapist. Like he's, he still has been, has been nonverbal. Well, has he been going to school? No, no, he's restless. He, he can't sit still. So it's, it's, it's immediately like the two immediate signifiers right there. Like, so here's a son that has autism. He's, he's restless. He has struggles participating in the classroom and he's nonverbal. And so the sagely grandfatherly advice from the judge in this situation is, well, first off, change his name. <laughs> He's like, the name you've given him, that this is why he's been set up for failure. This is why he's acting the way he is. Like, this no, this name is no good. You need to change his name. And then on top of that, you need to buy him a Hessenite ring. Yeah. He offers, like, some sort of deranged, holistic approach to... The healing to, power of crystals. And you're just like, this is our judge? He says you need to take advantage of these phenomena. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Again, like immediately like subverting this idea that that a judge is a rational, the, the ultimate symbol of like rational, logical thinking, mm-hmm. you know, and here he's like into fucking like all kinds of cosmic shit, you know, like, <laughs> he talks about numerology, you know. Yeah, there's this this whole vacation is is, you know, yeah, we see like a pool party or see like songs on the bus. We see guys talking about their consultancy businesses. Uh, we see, you know, just abundance, right? And riches and wealth and excess and 
yeah, just these like goofs. And and I think it's also implied that it's like he is the like the the patriarch. He has funded this entire thing, like because he right. at at all points is being sort of celebrated for for providing this, you know, for, for being as this judge and this respected figure, somebody that in a country with incredible economic disparity, so much so that he can just, you know, rent this bus and rent this villa for his family to, to sort of party in, but also celebrate him, you know, and what a good leader he is of a, of a family, what a good provider he is, you know. And the final moment we're left with is him asleep on a bench, <laughs> dozing off in this, this wide shot as these children run up to, to play a little prank on him. And it wakes him up, and he's pissed off. And what does he do? He smacks a kid in the face and tells him to cut that shit out. And then he slowly drifts back to sleep. While the kid's the crying ends. off screen yep. for a very long time in an incredible yeah. gag. Yeah. In just that, just that very final encounter of him, right? Like, there's so much in that. He's asleep on the bench right that's where the judge mm-hmm. sits on the bench he's asleep right and then yes he's he's spooked you know in this just very sort of like minor way by some some children and what does he do he throws the book at him he overreacts and the punishment of course does not fit the crime but what is it does it trouble him not at all not at all and he sort of just, as you said, just drifts back into his <laughs> yep. his his constant of being asleep on the bench. And all this time, Narayan's just in prison, wasting away because he sang yeah. a cool song. <laughs> yeah. It sucks. Yeah, it's awesome. What a great, like, honestly, yeah, this is one of those endings where it really elevated an already, you know, already very good movie uh, mm-hmm. for me to an- to another level. Yeah, really. I mean, uh, Ryan, you, you sort of started your, your opening statement, if you will, with, you know, uh, a statement, uh, you know, uh, about the about the director and like his age and this being his sort of debut, his debut feature at any rate. And uh, I mean, after watching it, I was like, wow, it is it is an incredible first film an incredible first feature just feels like it's a pretty like seasoned guy it's very formalist but it's also quite natural in the way that everything's sort of like playing out there's so i feel like a problem that is often present in first features is like it's everything's so particular it's all very precious it's all designed in this intricate way because they like to like this is how it has to look and this film is so formalist but it's like everything is like sort of occurring so naturally yeah it's like it's confident and kind of effortless it's seemingly effortless we know that it's not right but uh right yeah so in this case the court uh the court wins this one you know despite it being entirely out of order (laughs) yeah Yeah, these are both there's quite a bit of disorder in both of these courts there's no doubt about that uh, so yeah, these are, these are our picks, Andy. You know, as you had mentioned in the, when you had introduced this topic last week, you had said it was one of your your favorite genres. What are some other courtroom dramas that have always really registered with you? Oh yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, like you know, for a minute, you know, I in high school, like really, like I had drifted, 
I, I sort of like got bored. I was a theater kid. I've mentioned this on the pod before. I was a theater kid. I was doing all the plays at high school. And then senior year, I just, I kind of got like bored with, with theater for a while. I felt like I'd peaked when I played nicely, nicely in guys and dolls. And, and I was looking for a new challenge. So I, I got into the, I, I joined the law team and like the, the, the coach of it, like encouraged me because he was like, Hey, you know, attorneys are actors. Come on. Like, you know, you'd be great. Like bring your presence. And, and I did. And for a while, like I was like, man, you know, I was really into it and thought, man, I could, I could go into this. Like I, I got really jazzed up by it. And of course, like law team in high school is just like law plays basically, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's all like scripted and shit like that. So it was a natural fit for me. But, but one of the things I would do before, uh, any of our, our mock trial dates is one of my rituals was watching, as embarrassing as it might be to admit this, uh, my pre-trial ritual was watching A Few Good Men. Uh, <laughs> you would. I would, yeah. And I, I just, I loved that movie. I, I really did, you know. And I, it's been years since I've seen it, so I'm, I'm kind of interested in going back to rewatch it and see if I would still, like, you know, connect to it in the same way that I did as like an 18 year old idealist or whatever. Um, but you know, besides that, uh, the title for this week was disorder in the court. And that also happens to be, you know, it wasn't a unintentional choice on my part. That happens to be the name of one of my favorite three stooges shorts. It's called ah. Disorder in the Court, in which the Three Stooges are called to be witnesses in a trial. And I'm sure you can imagine uh, the Stooges, you know, they, they sort of just wreck up the giant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. I think, I honestly think it's, it's, it's one of their best, one of their best shorts. Well, uh, it was Andy's turn to pick the topic this week, which means next week it is Ryan's turn. What do you have for us this time? I know last week we did Dune, and since then I have rinsed off, but I guess um, there's still some sand and some crusty spots I'm I'm finding all over me, and I still can't shake certain elements uh, of Dune and the Dune universe, and in particular, it is the, uh, the figure that the whole film seems to revolve around. The fate of the universe and the Dune-verse seems to be on the rather unremarkable Paul. And I kept thinking like, ah, it's, it's sort of like a deflated rapture with, with Paul, right? And so I challenged both of you to bring me films about the chosen one. And that can be something you interpret as you will, but a protagonist that can be read or interpreted as a chosen one. Sure thing. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>